All right, so it's about two minutes after two, so we'll get started here. It is my pleasure today to introduce to you guys someone who you, you all probably know uh, even better than I do, but Dr. Sam Galvano is here today to talk to us. So I really feel fortunate to call Sam a friend and a mentor. I'm really happy to work with him at the hospital. He's um, He's been kind to me and taken me under his wing since I've been here. Um, but Sam did his training at Brigham and Women's uh, at the Harvard Hospital and then did his fellowship at Hopkins. Also got his PhD. Uh, he's a colonel in the Air Force. He is currently the medical director of the multi-trauma critical care unit and a professor of anesthesiology. And we are fortunate enough to have Dr. Galvano here today talking about endpoints of resuscitation. Okay, everybody. Good afternoon. Definitely a pleasure to be back um, with you all. And uh, I think most of you have heard me talk about some of this stuff. Some of you might have actually heard one of the previous iterations of this lecture, and I'm really glad to have a second chance at it because I think there's a couple things to clarify from last time and maybe some things that I've changed my view on. Uh, so this will hopefully be a little bit interactive. I'm going to uh, get through the slides and some of the data, but really hope that we have a chance to talk about some of this at the end. We're going to talk about endpoints of resuscitation. Now, this is not going to be a talk about de-resuscitation per se. It's really going to talk about when do you stop resuscitating? And what I mean by that is, as we'll talk about, when do you stop giving blood products? When do you stop uh, giving fluid? When do you stop titrating vasopressors? When are you kind of in that, that realm that you're doing a little bit better, so that you can kind of hold back? And I think it's one of the tougher decisions we make as intensivists. Um, by the way, do not have any disclosures for this talk. Here's our objectives. We're going to talk about resuscitative patterns during traumatic shock. I'm going to use a lot of the uh, literature from hemorrhagic shock, but I will hopefully be able to impart to you an understanding of the principles that are the same in other forms of shock, such as septic shock. We'll talk about a paradigm that can be used to organize your resuscitative efforts. We'll talk about measurements of oxygen delivery, because that's really what we're talking about with a lot of this. And then we'll, we'll talk about what different exact parameters we can talk about, uh, understand for endpoints of resuscitation. So when we're resuscitating, we don't want that to happen. And if you can see that, that's uh, somebody getting their chute opened up too soon. Likewise, we also don't want this to happen when we're participating in a resuscitative effort. I'm not going to show anybody getting hurt in these videos, so don't worry. <laughs> so a little late with the parachute opening. So it's really all about the timing. In a well-conducted resuscitation, this is what we would see. If we're going to use oxygen delivery on a y-axis and, and the compensated shock model on the, on the x-axis, over time, we would expect to be able to keep up do a good resuscitation, not overshoot too much, achieve hemostasis in the case of hemorrhage or in the case of sepsis, source control, but basically be able to keep up. And in patients who we successfully resuscitate who are a little sicker, who wind up maybe in a period of uncompensated shock or really severe shock, there may be a period of overshoot, but we still get to a successful resuscitation. And we do that by balancing oxygen delivery with the supply. And then if you don't do this well or you undershoot, then you can also wind up with multiple organ failure, inadequate resuscitation. This is what we want to 
avoid is that undershooting or premature stoppage of resuscitation and then the patient gets worse. And then if you don't do anything, the patient just falls off the cliff and dies, uh, okay? So this is obviously the acute uncompensated shock that we want to avoid. Now, this is the picture I showed the last time I gave this talk. And it's a picture that we put in a previous, as you can see, 2012 review on this topic. But I don't think this is correct. Uh, and you know, this was challenged a little bit the last time I talked about it. And I think the people that challenged it were probably right. You don't really have an oxygen deficit that you can pay back. It's not like going to the bank where you have a loan and you just kind of pay it back over time. It doesn't really work like that. Once you get into a period of a severe oxygen deficiency, a lot of those tissues are going to die. Some will regenerate. Some will be able to handle the hypoxia, but many won't. And so this idea of refractory shock with lethal cell injury, I'm not sure if that oxygen deficit's really the right term. Not sure if this is really 100% correct. I do think oxygen debt is a real thing, and I think that that's what we should be targeting when we resuscitate. Now, this is a really good paper, and by the way, uh, Andy and team, I will, like last time, I have a couple of key papers. This is one of them that I think really talks about some kind of some some novel ways to look at resuscitation, and this is one of my favorites. So, in this paper by Dunser et al., they talk about three different steps. And you can see the base of this pyramid starts with macrocirculatory endpoints, such as blood pressure, mean arterial pressure, targeting tissue perfusion-based endpoints, irregardless or irrespective of MAP, um, and then finally getting to single organ perfusion. And they use the kidney as an example in this paper. What I would tell you today is same concept. We're going to turn this uh, a little bit upside down and provide a better structure that might help you in 2020 based on what we can do. We, we just don't have the ability with all the organs to really target single organ perfusion well and in real time. There's some indirect markers we have, and of course we have some lab parameters we can use, but I'm gonna really focus in on how to build the case towards an organized resuscitation. And so I propose um, a triangle that we'll talk about in just a minute. But before we do that, resuscitation, just so we're clear about this, like I said in the beginning, this is the process of correcting physiologic disorders. Not necessarily striving to get to normal, but just correcting that underlying pathophysiology and restoring the physiology to a level that's compatible with life, compatible with, with function. And so we do this with crystalloids, we do this with blood products and titration of vasopressors. But one of the most challenging things we have as intensivists is when to stop, when to stop giving that fluid, when to stop transfusing, when to stop titrating the vasopressors. Sometimes it's pretty obvious if they're extremely hypertensive and trying to jump out of the bed and next self-extubate, and they may be getting better, okay? But many times it's a subtle change that you have to detect to get to this point. And so that's what we're going to talk about hopefully today, give you some tools to the toolbox to figure out how to do this. So here's the proposal. This is a pyramid uh, pyramid scheme that kind of just helps you. It's not an algorithm. This is this is all recursive, okay? And what I mean by that is you have to go back and forth, up and down. But we start with vital signs. We always start with vital signs. It's the easiest thing to get. And there's actually a lot of information in vital signs. And I'll share with you my thoughts about shock index, which I think is a really good way to look at this from a composite vital sign standpoint. But then we have oxygen delivery and carrying capacity. And then finally, microperfusion. 
um, right down in the lower, your lower left corner. We're not going to talk about the other um, acidosis and single organs, and we're not going to talk about coagulopathy. There's a whole other hour we can talk about that, hour plus. But this is just the overall paradigm that I'd like to share in terms of a concept, a concept of how to resuscitate and, and determine when you're kind of done a good job of that. Goes without saying that you have to identify in, in the underlying cause of shock. We can pour products in all day, we can give fluid all day, we can certainly go with vasopressors all day, but until we identify that underlying cause of shock, we're gonna, we're gonna be chasing our tails. So hopefully we've done that. I think it goes without saying, but that this is, this is kind of another fundamental concept we have to keep in mind. So there's another way to talk about this. If you read the literature on endpoints of resuscitation, a lot of the review articles talk about things like upstream and downstream endpoints. What I would share with you are the upstream endpoints really, re, really are regarding oxygen delivery. Now we use the term oxygen delivery. I'm gonna share with you today. I think delivery is a little bit of a misnomer. Maybe oxygen dispatch is a better term and I'll explain why in just a few minutes. But these are the upstream endpoints. And then as we press forward, we have downstream endpoints of which microperfusion, very difficult to measure, but we do have some indirect measures to make sure we're doing a good job of maintaining the microperfusion to organs. And these are some things I'll talk about today. That'll be the real thrust of this talk is talking about that lower corner of this pyramid. The other aspects of this all merit their own discussions. We could have a whole hour on kidney biomarkers. We could talk about TEG and ROTEM. Love to talk about that stuff. Really good stuff. Has some limitations, but very helpful. Whole nother hour. So we're going to just focus on that microperfusion aspect and the upstream portion and the downstream portions. That's what we'll limit this talk to. All right. How do you know where you are? So that's the first question. How do you know where exactly where you are in terms of your resuscitative effort? Do you use the ATLS table. Now this table is better than the previous ATLS tables that had more numbers in there. These are trends and it's, it's really a good update. The only number really is base excess and that's something we'll talk about, but uh, you know, is how negative is your base excess. And if you're a trauma person, that's how we refer to base excess. We just call it base excess. We don't use the term base deficit. There's some zealots out there that will really come after you if you try saying base deficit, even though it is a base deficit. So we'll talk about this in just a few minutes, but I think this table is helpful as an overview, but you got to keep in mind, this table, even in 2020, even in the last iteration of ATLS in 2017, when you look at this in large databases like the TARN database, interrelationships between heart rate, blood pressure, and respiratory rate are not as reliable as we would like them to be. They just aren't. So these relationships are just not as strong as ATLS may suggest. Lots of confounding factors, okay? Lots of confounding factors. So um, that's just something to keep in mind. You know, um, here's the big principle though with all of this. The majority of shock is compensated or it's occult. So a lot of our patients that present, especially in the trauma world, early on, they may look fine in terms of their blood pressure. Maybe, maybe their blood pressure is a little soft, but you know, as you're working them up, they could very well be in uh, a fairly deep state of shock, but they're compensating in terms of their blood, their vital signs. So you know, recognizing this early is important and also recognizing in the back end is important to make sure you're not 
falling off the curve again in terms of oxygen dispatch or oxygen delivery. I think one of the tools you can have at your disposal that can help you is the shock index. This is easy and anyone around with me knows I carry around my iPad here with, that I have all my um, vital signs, continuous vital signs on. I can monitor the whole unit in terms of shock index, SATs, respiratory rate, temperature, but the top of that graph is shock index, and I'll show a picture of that in a second. I think this is important, um, and it's really easy because if you just divide your heart rate by your blood pressure, anything greater than one, 0 0.9, but you could just round it up and say one, that's something you probably need to pay attention to. Now, this has been validated, you see some of the references, mostly in our trauma literature in terms of predicting the need for transfusions, even massive transfusions, but it's really simple at the bedside. If your heart rate is greater than your systolic, that's gonna be a shock index greater than one. You don't have to do any math. Just looking at that and recognizing that pattern can be helpful. And sometimes it's a little subtle. What if the systolic's hovering around 100, your heart rate's 110? That's a shock index over one. That's something you need to pay attention to. Now, this isn't perfect either. There's a lot of things that can confound this, athletes, there's some gender differences, spinal cord injuries don't behave according to this. Uh, elderly patients, patients on beta blockers may have some confounding variables that alter their shock index, their ability to mount a tachycardic response. But for the most part, shock index, and this is just a picture here that shows old versus young. Um, so you can see here the specificity of the shock index can change as you get older, there's a shift. Uh, Basically, the dotted line is patients over 65. So a lower shock index in older patients can be indicative that you're in trouble. And it's not necessarily one. In older patients, it might be closer to 0.8 or 0.7. So that's something to keep in mind. And then if you look at blood transfusions, this is massive transfusion versus any transfusion. You can see a very clear, almost exponential rise as the shock index increases you wind up with a, a very um, distinct pattern that indicates you're probably gonna need some blood products. So I like this. I think um, I would make this statement and I'll stand by this. I think the shock index is the only, one of the only clinical signs that's consistently associated with blood loss compared to traditional vital signs. I'm not sure exactly what to say about septic shock with this. It's still something you have to pay attention to. It can indicate that you could be in trouble. Um, really, the shock index, I think, has most of its validation done in hemorrhaging patients. And um, there's some additional work on this as well that showed we've, that we've done in over 10,000 admissions. We've actually got way more than that now in our databases, uh, terabytes of data on all of these patients that all the way from, our goal is to have this all the way from point of injury in the ambulance helicopter all the way to the floor bed through their ICU course, OR, even the CT scanner. And so we're close to being able to do this and we have been able to do this in a couple studies, but by being able to look at this data for 15 minutes of time, it gives you an awfully lot, large amount of information. And like everything in critical care, it's all about the trends. That's really what we're looking at, the trending. So very important, I think, to look at the trend. And if you only get 15 minutes of data, you can see a pretty clear pattern in somebody who's getting into trouble. I'll show you a couple examples here. So other things about the shock index, the continuous shock index has shown very good. We've demonstrated this in a couple papers, sensitivity, specificity, much better than coin toss. Importantly, it's got a really good negative predictive value. So as long as you don't have some of those confounding variables, at least in trauma patients, very good negative predictive value.
that you're not going to need to do a massive transfusion or maybe any transfusion if you've got a fairly low and benign shock index. So I try to look at this at, on every patient that I round on every day. I really try to look at the shock index. I try to actually report it, the average-ish shock index in my notes. I think it's important. And I can tell you that I, I, I use this as I'm going through the day, even if I'm busy doing other things, I'll have the vital signs in an upper screen so I can follow this. Okay. And not to keep harping on it, this is a tri-recorder. Wouldn't it be great if we had ability to really look at this with red, green, yellow? Well, we do. This, this is the tri-recorder. It's not really a tri-recorder. It's an iPad. Um, you can get it on your phone, but I, an iPad's better just for visualization. So you can see the entire unit here by looking at this, and we call this the CCAT viewer. It's designed for the Air Force so we can use it in the back of aircraft where you can't hear well, and you can't always see your patients very well. And by the way, we're using this now with COVID because you can't always see your patients very well when they're in a biocontainment unit either. So we do use this, many of us use this on a daily basis in our biocontainment units or in other units where we're treating COVID patients with a curtain and you can't see them, you can't get in the room and examine them as much as you'd like. So this can be really helpful. So a couple quick examples to show you. This was, a, uh, this was actually a patient who was 38 years old, postpartum hemorrhage. Now you can see, oh, I think I lost it there. You can see here a lot of shock index going up. And you can see a couple pauses where there was a little bit of response to a unit or two of blood. But this patient, now here's what's interesting. The systolic pressure was not ridiculously off. It started to drop a little towards the end, but initially the shock index started rising much sharper than the blood pressure drop. So you'll see changes in shock index occur You'll see the heart rate, that can be all over the place. That could be from pain, that could be from a lot of different things, but you'll see the shock index start to gradually rise upwards and indicating that you're in trouble. This patient had uh, a hysterectomy, had to go actually coded. Um, that's what this is here. Oh, keep losing my, there we go. You see there was a brief code here. Uh, fortunately, the outcome was excellent. The patient went to the OR, massive transfusion, um, but, you know, this is the thing you want to catch early to make sure you don't get into this gap here. Um, and, and subsequently, there's another case here where now this was a different patient. Oh, sorry about that. This is a different patient now who was 30 years old, so young, pancreatitis, really bad pancreatitis, just got decannulated from ECMO. And here's the interesting thing with this patient. Shock index is kind of high, concerning. Heart rate was high, blood pressure, a little soft, but not horrible. And this patient just came off ECMO, by the way. So what did this patient really need? What this patient really needed, quite frankly, was just to be dialyzed. So that's where we determined. And as soon as we started CRT, you saw all the vital signs go in the right direction. So it's just a way to trend things out and understand where you are. It's, I think shock index can be very valuable. Think about using it in your practice. Um, that's all I'm going to say for vital signs, because I, um, I think that's the most valuable way to use vital signs. I think that, at least in my practice, and in terms of trying to understand when you're kind of at an endpoint for resuscitating. So um, let's talk about some upstream indices of perfusion. Now, when we talk about upstream indices, what we're really referring to, once again, is oxygen dispatch or delivery. And all of you know this very well. We're going to review it quickly. It's always good stuff for the boards. In fact, uh, that is my one disclosure is I do write for the board, so I'm not giving away any questions here, but I will tell you that these are things that uh, 
these are things you may see, put it that way. So oxygen delivery, everybody knows this equation. I think that um, most of our therapeutic measures in one way or another in critical care are related to this equation. Is it a perfect equation? No, but I think it provides a good framework for some of the principles that I wanna talk about with you here. So one of the principles is delivery. So remember how I was saying, you know, is oxygen delivery really the right term? Well, I'm not sure. There's some folks that think maybe dispatch is a better term and whatever we wanna, these are semantics. The point is delivery implies all oxygen's delivered. And we know that's not the case because only about 25% is extracted. Now, if you're really sick, more than that will be extracted. And that's something we're gonna talk about. But it also implies that there's some external process that's responsible for the arrival of oxygen to the cell. It also refers to or implies that cells suck in oxygen. And neither of these concepts is necessarily true. Um, you know, in convective oxygen delivery, you're talking about movement of oxygen via bulk transport. Diffusive is really talking about the passive movement of oxygen down a gradient. In any event, perhaps a better term is dispatch. And, and I think um, the point to make about this is I want to bring in, and this is going to be the last thing I'm going to talk about with COVID-19 because we have all been inundated by COVID-19. But it has helped us focus on and refocus on some sound physiologic concepts. One of them is this, the difference between hypoxemia and hypoxia. So we've heard about the happy hypoxemics. You've heard about that. But several of you have managed them on the front lines. Um, I have managed some of these patients over the phone that have called me, colleagues that are sick, not just here in Baltimore, but elsewhere, and asking me, should I go to the hospital? What should I do? So we talk it through. Uh, most of them had a pulse oximeter, so that was good. And we would talk about this and, and try to talk it through and make the right choices. And most of them did, all of them actually did fine. They weren't that sick. Hence, that's why they were calling me. But nevertheless, the point here is there's a difference between these terms. And I know I mix them up in my own practice. I think we all do. But I think it's important to be clear. Hypoxemia is low arterial oxygen tension. Hypoxia is failure of oxygenation at the tissue level. Okay? So if you have a patient who's hypoxemic, maybe a COVID patient, you put their pulse ox on, it's 82, 85%, and they look fine. They feel okay. They're breathing a little fast. You take their pulse, maybe they're a little tachycardic. What's happening here is this is the oxygen dispatch, oxygen delivery equation at work. What's happening here is their cardiac output is compensating for that low PaO2 and trying to compensate. And the patients who can compensate and get through it and get through all the inflammation and all the other pathophysiology with things like COVID-19, which is, can develop, as you know, into a state of shock, um, they will be okay. It's the patients that can't compensate that wind up going down the tubes and require a lot more support. Let me, let me just submit one other thing to you here about this. So what about sepsis? So if we go back to this equation, hemoglobin, hemoglobin is a big part of this equation. In fact, classic board questions would state, you know, which of the following will give you the biggest bang for your buck in terms of oxygen delivery? One of the classic answers we've always, we've had is hemoglobin. If you do the math and you give a couple of units, yeah, that'll increase your DO2 pretty significantly. However, what I would submit to you is that um, 
in sepsis, that doesn't always work. And you probably have seen that. I can tell you that we see that as well in our ECMO patients. We see that as well in septic patients. This idea that you can give hemoglobin and improve oxygen delivery, number one, um, that has been fairly well disproven as a, a course of action. And number two, the reason it doesn't work is it gets back to this. Um, really, the greatest changes in your oxygen delivery are going to be more through manipulation of cardiac output. And that, that's a, this is all a segue into the next section where I'm, I want to talk about some hemodynamic things that I think can help us in terms of endpoints of resuscitation. But if you think about sepsis as an example, um, you know, you've got nitric, nitric oxide production, you've got um, disorders leading to autoregulation, a distributive shock picture. So <clears throat> if you gave hemoglobin as part of your resuscitative strategy to try to improve delivery, it's not going to work in a lot of cases because it's really the cardiac output that's compensating for that low PaO2. And that's what you have to keep up with. And that's why the argument with a vasodilated patient, should we be going earlier to vasopressors to address the microcirculatory dysfunction is a whole debate that continues to go on. And you've, you've heard and read about that. The point here is um, what I would say is if you're gonna take that board exam, I think it's really your cardiac output. And that's the way I would ask the question as an, as an exam writer, um, because I think that's what we see and understand, at least in this day and age. Cardiac output's really the key. And so I would, you know, that's one of your endpoints, and we'll talk about that here. Um, <clears throat> just to really kind of hit this home, your normal dispatcher delivery to consumption ratio should be, it's usually five times greater. We usually have plenty of delivery. In fact, on ECMO, on ECMO, we use an SAO2, SAO2 greater than 80%. And if you go to the bedside and calculate a cardiac output and shoot a VTI and actually get a no kidding cardiac output, you can do the math and figure out that, yeah, even though their SAT isn't the greatest, even though their ABG is not perfect, it's enough. It's enough to make sure they don't become anaerobic or revert to different metabolic pathways to keep up with their energy production. And normally five times more than greater than needed, 20 to 25% is extracted. That's your normal consumption on a, a normal person, three to five mils per kg. And so this leads into this idea of, you know, really looking at that cardiac output piece of oxygen delivery and understanding when you've reached a point where, okay, I'm doing okay. I'm keeping up. I don't need to do anything more. Maybe I can back off some different interventions. Maybe I can back off my fluid that I'm using to address the stroke volume. Maybe part of the stroke volume problem is blood, blood loss that I've got to recover. Heart rate, yeah, we can manipulate that way down line, but that's not something we do off the bat. We don't beta block patients just to make this number better. Sometimes we need to make sure that they're able to mount a heart rate. They may need pacing. But the point here is really looking at this equation as your middle point of you know, upstream oxygen delivery is really critical. And I think the best way to get at stroke volume is looking at um, and using this as an endpoint of resuscitation. I think your hemodynamic assessment is an endpoint of resuscitation. It's an important one. Now, how exactly can you do that? How can you exactly do that? So you can, you can look at some things if you have a PA catheter. <clears throat> I'm going to get into CVP in a second. I really should have taken that off the slide, but I list it there because it's still used by folks. I don't think it's a good indication of preload. I'll explain why in a second. I think contractility, making sure that you've got good contractility is, is absolutely uh, important. 
you know, elastance. So how do you calculate elastance? So if you're able to get a pulse pressure variation, you can divide that by stroke volume variation. These are things we can get off of echo or even bedside assessment looking at an A-line, we can calculate it. There's machines that we can use to calculate it. The uh, PLETH variation index is also another parameter, but these are what are known as you know, dynamic indices that we can look at in terms of hemodynamic parameters that ensure we're providing an adequate cardiac output. Okay, and then of course you've got your ox other oxygen delivery parameters. Overall, cardiac output is all related to all of these. Okay, and then CVP. So this is the classic Merrick published. Uh, you know, um, this is this has a correlation coefficient of um, like 0.2. So CVP just does not correlate well with intravascular volume. There's a lot of confounding variables with that. Don't use it in my practice. I don't think many of us do. I'm not saying CVP doesn't have a role. It does, for example, a right heart failure patient, that may be a very reasonable thing to monitor. But if you're gonna use this as a static indi indicator and it's gonna be your only indicator, that's the way I was trained when I was in medical school. It's not the way we do things in 2020. There's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I think other indicators that are better are things like echo and maybe our in minimally invasive monitors. But we gather these, concepts into the concept that uh, Dr. Pinsky from Pittsburgh calls functional hemodynamic monitoring. And I think this is really a revolutionary type of concept. It's, it's something all of you do, and I know you know this, pulse pressure variation, stroke volume variation, looking at dynamic bedside indices to make decisions about fluids, pressors, even blood products. This is where we really think the money's at. Now there's some devices you can put on this is the FlowTrack device. I have absolutely no disclosures with this company. I've never accepted anything, not even a pen from them. Um, I do think that the device has a role in the OR. I think that the thing that really is important to remember with these are these, a lot of these, um, uh, a lot of this technology has been validated in patients in like the OR getting spine surgery under eight mils per kg uh, tidal volume, very controlled conditions, not the AFib, 70-year-old patient with a history of COPD, CHF that we see in our units. So just keep that in mind. Yes, you can employ these algorithms, which do calculate stroke volume variation for you. That's true. And you can use them to guide your fluid. You can use them to guide the decision whether to contain, continue or discontinue an inotrope or even get to a diuretic. But I think you just have to be careful in understanding that these have not been validated in a lot of the patients that we see who are the sickest of the sick. So is it an additional tool? It's $185 roughly to put one of these on a patient. Just keep that in mind. And um, our problem was when we first started using, they just wound up on the floor because they would slide down the railing and then there was no data collection. It was completely worthless. So if you're going to use it, put it front and center, make sure it's, it's a patient that you're reasonably certain. What I will often do is if we're going to use this, at least try to get some echo parameters to correlate to make sure you're not too far off and then use this as a trending monitor if you'd like. But um, I do think that in our institution, this has kind of fallen a little bit by the wayside. I don't think we use this as much as we used to because um, we have other things we can do. Here's just uh, from Barnes uh, Hospital. They have another similar uh, algorithm, as you can see, that they talk about in terms of how to do this based on pulse pressure variation and stroke volume variation. And then we have the now famous focused rapid echocardiographic evaluation. Uh, 
really innovated by Sarah Murthy. And I think this is a great way to go. It's a functional way to look at the heart and not just the heart, but your overall volume tolerance capability. Um, and I think it gives a lot of information. This is also expanded into the lungs and there's a lot more to this, but you know, the principal views are pretty basic and can be done rapidly at the bedside, really uh, cost effective. And some of the initial reports, and this is, this is from 2015, but I'd say that we're even better at this now in terms of getting a good grasp of volume status, cardiac function. I know I'm probably preaching to the choir with, with this group. I know that everybody here really agrees that um, this is the way to go. I mean, I think that this is just really a, a really effective means to get a good grasp of where you are in your resuscitation scheme. So I would encourage the use of this. It's a whole separate talk and there's actually plenty of stuff, uh, including the, the wonderful lung ultrasound uh, that was just given on this uh, forum as well by Dr. Murthy, I think a week ago. So lots to go on that. I'm, I'm going to kind of go through this. There's different phenotypes that have been classically described. Uh, you know, this is an example of a vasodilated high output patient. So the vital signs aren't going to always tell you what's going on. I mean, this is a patient who's going to be tachycardic, but you know, their pressure might be keeping up. Actually, you might not have a blood pressure that's deranged. Neither shock index might are maybe borderline but it's not until you put that probe on them that you see that kind of picture. So I think it's important. Now, is it a, is it a perfect measure of cardiac output? If you compare it to something like the PA catheter, not perfect, but pretty good. I mean, look at these Bland-Altman plots. Look at these correlation plots. In both surgical and non-surgical patients in this paper by Peter um, Oliveri, a couple, uh, not too long ago here, was shown to be a pretty good predictor and pretty good correlate of a PA catheter, which is much more invasive. And, you know, one, one final comment about echo is, you know, 80, 90% of patients you can get good windows on. There's sometimes that 10% or so of patients you can't. So we have uh, here transitioned to TE, and we are, we are rapidly gaining experience with that to the point where that's going to become part of our armamentarium. I would uh, argue that it's well within the realm of any intensivist. You do not need to be an anesthesiologist or a cardiologist to do a basic TEE. And so separate talk, more to come on that. Um, but I'll tell you that uh, that's, that's the other part of this is there's really no very few excuses where you can't get this physiologic data and use it as an endpoint of your resuscitation. All right, let's end this up with a couple of comments about downstream indices of perfusion. And what I mean by this is this is where we get into the lactate uh, base excess and also O2 extraction ratio. Those are the big ones. So we're really targeting this lower corner. We're now, we've done our estimation. We've gone to the bedside. We've looked at the vital signs. We've done some preliminary lab review to make sure our dispatch or delivery is okay. We're kind of okay. The hemoglobin's okay. Now we want to look at the microperfusion aspect and see, make sure that our tissues are actually getting the oxygen they need. And that, this is where it gets tricky. This is where it gets a little trickier. So you have um, the microcirculation. Now, the problem with oxygen delivery equations, the DO2 equation, is it does not describe regional differences in microcirculation and perfusion. So in other words, blood pressure does not always equal perfusion. You may perfuse some tissues at a lower blood pressure. Others may need a higher blood pressure. Others may need a higher oxygen content or delivery. 
but we don't have great ways of directly doing that at the bedside. We just don't. The way we get at it is we look at these other measures here as indirect measures of how well we're doing in terms of resuscitating the microcirculation. Just remember that oxygen flux is different in every tissue bed. It's not constant throughout the body. Regional resistances are very important. And each organ system has a little bit of a different way of handling that. But microcirculation adjusts to metabolic demands. And so assessing this, unfortunately, we have to often use indirect measures, but they're still very helpful in understanding what's going on, okay? So one way, one way to look at this is just a mixed venous. So I won't do a ton of these anymore. We've kind of gotten out of the business of putting these cannulas in where we can uh, automatically measure this, but it's still an easily obtainable item. You can draw it off of any central line. And the concept here, just as a brief review is, you think about your hemoglobin going around as a train. And when it comes back, like we said, you shouldn't be consuming more than 25%. Only 25% of the passengers should be getting off. 75% should be coming right back for that return trip. It's when we start to see more passengers fall off that we have to be concerned, that we're extracting more oxygen and something's going on to drive that. And that's what we wanna get our arms around and understand. And so one way you can really get at that is the O2 extraction ratio. So this is the ratio of oxygen delivery to uptake. Normally, it should only be about 20 to 28%. If you're extracting more than 50%, and the, the papers quoted here are from animal studies as well as one human study that show that that's where your, your lactate will start to rise as a measure of tissue dysoxia. So you're not keeping up with enough oxygen delivery to the tissues. You are developing, no kidding, hypoxia, hypoxia. One way to approximate this very easily is to take your SAO2, remember that's off your ABG, and SAO2 is not perfectly equivalent to SPO2, okay, but SAO2, and subtract out your mixed venous. And there you go, you have an approximation of where you're at with this, okay, that's an easy way to do it. The right way to do it is to actually have a PA catheter and get a, um, a CAVO2, do the CAO2 minus the CVO2. So you get most of the information off of your ABG. You'll need a cardiac output, which you can get off a PA catheter or an ultrasound. But then to really get that true SVO2 is off of the tip of a PA catheter, which we just don't do that a lot anymore. Not saying I never do it. I do place a couple PA cats in, in a year, but it's pretty rare. Um, but this is one way to do that. And I would, I would submit to you that this is a really good way to, to just understand where you are in terms of your ratio of uptake to delivery. And if it's, if it's high, then you really need to be concerned that maybe you do need to give a blood transfusion. It can be used as a physiologic transfusion trigger. Or as pertains to this talk, you can assure yourself that you have enough resuscitation underway and you don't have to be giving another unit of blood. Because guess what? Your, your O2 extraction is right on target and you're gonna meet the metabolic demands of the body. Okay, that's it. it's one piece of information. It's not the only thing to do that. The other one, the big one, the big one is lactate. And this is the bulk of the next five minutes. I just really wanna hit home on some of the points with lactate. So let me start with this, just think about this. Question that's posed is when would you stop giving crystalloids and maybe say, let's use a post-op surgical patient, large volume loss, open abdomen for several hours, 
Maybe we're talking about a Whipple or some big surgery. Maybe we're even talking about a trauma patient in a really big abdominal procedure. So the question is, they're now in your unit and their blood pressure's low. Their systolic is low. The nurses keep grabbing you. Hey, look, our map's 55, 50. We're not meeting your map goal that you wrote in your note. How do we, what are we going to do? More fluid? Want me to give another liter? Do I give some blood? What do I do? So the question is, when do you stop giving crystalloids? And when do you think about maybe starting some vasopressor in a, in a patient? And I would say that one answer you're going to get from a lot of intensivists, and I'm not an absolutist. I, I, I want to look at the whole picture, all the things we just talked about, static dynamic indices. This is not a question I answer with one lab value. But you will hear some folks say, when do I stop giving crystalloids? When I see the lactate's normal and they're still hypotensive. That's when I go to vasopressors. I don't know if that's the right answer. You might argue that you would need to get to vasopressors a little sooner than that, but that is one answer. So let's talk about lactate. What do we really mean by lactate? So lactate gets a little bit of a bad rap. I think it's oversimplified. I think we, a prior concept is that lactate is nothing but a dead end noxious waste product of glycolysis. And that it's the primary cause of O2 debt, not just the not just the end effect of O2 debt, but maybe even the cause of an oxygen debt. Okay, what I would propose, and others would propose, is that no, it's more than that. It's it's really indicative of your ATP use. There's all kinds of cell-to-cell -cell shuttles that are looking at lactate as an actual energy substrate. Um, so it's also an intermediate in the pro an intermediate compound that's produced in the process of wound repair and regeneration. There's also large amounts produced in rapidly multiplying cells or cells that are trying to regenerate. Okay, and then also and most importantly in most forms of shock, the adrenaline surge stimulates sodium potassium ATPase activity, and that leads to as a byproduct lactate. A persistent elevated lactate can Re reflects aerobic, it can, it can affect not just anaerobic, but aerobic glycolysis rather than tissue hypoxia. So lactate is really complex. This is going to be the second article I'll give you, Andy, to give to everybody, the Gladden paper from 2004, which talks about lactate and takes it to the next level. It's not just a dead-end noxious waste product from the breakdown of sugar, and it's not just the product of what you get when you don't have enough oxygen, okay? little more complicated. There's lots of things that can increase it, okay? If you're on epinephrine, we talked about the adrenaline surge, but epinephrine itself, even if you're on a low dose inotropic dose, that can happen. Cytokines can stimulate it. All kinds of other things can stimulate it. Certainly liver and kidney disease can uh, result in a higher lactate that's not being quote unquote clear. That's a term we, we try to use very carefully, not exactly correct physiologically. And then there's also the classic type A and type B causes of, hypoc of, of lactate, hyperlactatemia that have been described. Most cases, I would argue, fall in the middle. If you've got tissue hypoxia, there's probably some other pathophysiologic things going on, and it's really probably somewhere in the middle. But in any event, we know that when you don't decrease your lactate level, if it's not decreasing, that's a sign that something is still going on metabolically that's driving it. And we know the silver day in 24 hours for trauma patients, if you have not uh, corrected this and you don't see the lactate trending in a correct direction, decreasing, your survival and your chances of having multi-organ multi failure go up. Not only that, but your respiratory complication rate 
also doubles over 24 hours. So it's a very powerful marker, but it all, it's really, there's a lot of physiology going on here. It's not just as simple as, as I think some of us, at least myself, I, I, maybe I understood it early on. Okay. And the other thing is this. Now, um, a little controversial and some would argue maybe in septic patients, this may not be true because you do get a lot of shunting. But if you're definitely going to check this in trauma patients, there's a pretty, this is a correlation coefficient of about 0.92. Uh, and that's pretty good. So you can get a venous lactate and that's okay. This is not the dogma that you must get an arterial lactate. And we've done some recent work on this in the back of helicopters, as a matter of fact, where you know a lactate rise of even two or greater, which is not very much, as you know, and that's millimoles per liter in the US system, is associated with increased mortality. And it's also associated with the need for more life-saving interventions, LSIs, and um, specifically the need for uh, transfusions. And if you're above four, then that's a pretty strong indicator that you're not moving in the right direction. That's actually better than uh, systolic blood pressure in several of the papers that both we've done here, as well as our, some of our colleagues you see, you know, Frank Guyatt and, and Pittsburgh have done a lot of work with this from the pre-hospital all the way to the hospital. So then that begs another question that comes up. And there was a really good uh, back and forth, and I think it was chess, I think I have the re references here, of lactate versus mixed venous, which is better? If I'm going to get one, which one should I get? Which one should I rely on? And you know, I, it was an interesting debate going back and forth on this. And I know when I was a fellow, this was one of the things we would argue about. And I think we just probably have that a little bit wrong. I think both are important. And here's why. If they're both normal, if they're both normal, then you can consider yourself fairly well resuscitated. There's not anything you need to do other than monitor the patient. Likewise, if your mixed venous is going down, but your lactate's normal, well, maybe we need some fluids, maybe some vasopressors, but really what you need is a good volume assessment. So that gets back to your hemodynamic assessment is really an endpoint that you need to continue to evaluate. Now, what if your lactate's going up and your mixed venous is going down? That's a pretty easy one. That just indicates that we, we have some things we can do to try to increase oxygen dispatch or delivery, such as bumping up the FiO2, maybe a little more PEEP. Maybe you do need to give a transfusion. But this gets into the, are we keeping up with the convective delivery of oxygen? And are there things we can do to manipulate that DO2 equation? And then last, more in our European colleagues than we do here, I used to discount every mixed venous that was like 80 or 90% as just a lab error. I really did. I didn't think it meant anything. I was like, oh, throw that out, it's lab error. But I think we're missing the boat when we do that. I know I have in the past when I've looked at that. So if your lactate's going up, but your mixed venous is also going up, this is an indirect indication you might have microcirculatory dysfunction. Now, how can we get at that? I'll tell you, in the trauma world, sometimes we'll try to open up the vascular beds with more opioids. I'm not sure if that's the right answer. We give, as you know, in tra the shock trauma center, we do give fairly high dose opioids as part of our resuscitative approach with the belief that we're helping impact that microcirculation, but we don't have any direct proof of that. That's just been a practice that we've seen um, over the years, but we're working on that. We have some data from proper trial to look at that. But I think in the European colleagues, you know, do you use a low-dose vasodilator? I don't know. I mean, we don't do that in our practice here, but this is where if you have the, these data, you could make an argument that maybe that's the problem. Maybe we just aren't getting, uh, maybe we have a microcirculatory dysfunction. Maybe a vasodilator is the answer, okay? 
So something to think about there, but I think both are complementary. And then last, we have base excess. And just like I said before, the trauma gurus will really want you to use that term base excess. It's either negative or positive. It really is a base deficit because it's the amount of base you need to return your plasma back to a normal pH at standard conditions. Now, a base excess reflects either a pure metabolic component of acidosis or alkalosis. And it's not, it shouldn't be affected by short-term changes in CO2. So that makes it very helpful to us. This is just another picture here that shows how this works. If you've got a buildup of acids that are not balanced by the alkalis, then you'll wind up showing a negative base excess, and that's not good. Correlates well with mortality. Just like lactate, if you're not seeing this normalize in 24 hours, you've got increased risk for things like ARDS, multi-system organ failure, mortality. And if you're gonna use one threshold number to really make yourself worried, if your base excess is persistently negative six or less or greater in the negative direction, negative eight, negative 10, negative 12, that's something you need to be concerned about. But just like every other lab test, base excess is not perfect. If you've got hyperchloremia, that's gonna throw it off. If you've got alcohol intoxication, that can throw it off. Renal failure throws it off. Unlike lactate, that graph I just showed you, Base excess does not have a good correlation venous versus arterial. I would recommend an arterial sample because your standard deviation can be upwards of two. So how does that help you? If it's negative two, if it's positive two, and you're off by two, how, how do you calibrate that? It can be difficult, right? So the way Dr. Dutton, one of my heroes, the former director of trauma anesthesiology here at the Shock Trauma Center, the way he used to put it was, you know, lactate kind of gives you a picture of the overall area under the curve in terms of overall dose of shock. And your base excess is like a snapshot. So in other words, if you're in the OR or if you're in the recess bay or you're in the ICU and you're trying to understand where your patient's at, we don't get a lactate Q hour. We may get an ABG every one or two hours. We can do that at the bedside with an iStat machine even. So we can get the snapshots with the base excess and then use lactate every four to six hours to get the overall trend uh, and use the two in a complementary fashion, if that makes sense. All right, a couple of the last things just to bring in, so snapshot there. So tissue oximetry, this device shown here is not no longer on the market. I've got one of the last remaining survivors in my office. We did a study on this in the helicopters and they all broke within a week, except for the one that's still alive. It's not a useful tool, but the concept is very, very enticing. So what if we could actually measure the tissue oxygenation level? Now, I, I will tell you, we can do this in the lab quite well. It's just that this device, which looks really nice, really handy, put it on the thinner eminence, good to go, not the case. We just don't have the devices yet that are that good and robust to do this. But in the lab, we can. And I think this is one of the things that we can get at in terms of endpoints understanding what's really going on at the tissue level. You can also be like my colleague, Dr. McCurdy, who all of you know very well, should know. So he has uh, one of these devices, at least he did, where you can look under the tongue. Is the answer under the tongue? Can you, can you use this technology to take a look at the flow of erythrocytes and the microcirculation? Can we actually look at it and also quantitate it? And so we can do this. These devices are, are out there. They're not used widely. Some a little bit more in Europe, some of my colleagues there have.
here's a picture of one of my colleagues. So we put it under his tongue. You can see nice, good flow. And this requires an interpretation and it requires a learning curve on how to do this. But it's, it is one way we could really get at that microcirculation. And um, I don't have my own yet, but um, who knows if I can get some money, I'll try to maybe buy one and play with it. There's some literature on that. So um, to kind of conclude here with some of our other thoughts here, you know, what is that seventh vital sign? We've looked at all of these things over the years at Shock Trauma. Um, we've looked at, you know, I, I really think the vital signs data is very powerful. I think it reflects a sympathetic and parasympathetic balance. And I think that's where we've done a lot of work with this off that vital signs monitor that I showed you and analyzing those uh, vital signs trends in a very careful, deliberate manner. And you can actually get a lot of information from that. So more to come on that. And these are just some other techniques that are out there as that perhaps seventh vital sign. Um, so in the interest of time, we went a little long. I, I show you this because just like in regular jujitsu, uh, you have to play some physiologic jujitsu with your patients. And I want you just to try to remember that triangle concept as a tool. So if you're you know, 3 a.m. and you're trying to figure this out, when to, when to back off things, when, when you've reached the end point or whether you haven't reached your end point, think about this pyramid, start with your vital signs, look at your elements of convective oxygen delivery or dispatch, check all these boxes to make sure you're meeting the demands, and then, you know, start to take a look at some of the other indications that get at the microperfusion. You have all these other tools here, which I know many of you, including myself, use, all subjects of different talks. We really just kind of talked about this lower corner as a downstream endpoint. So with that, um, and remember this is recursive. You have to go back up, down, and across. It's not just a simple algorithm. So with that, um, I'm gonna stop there and I think we have a few moments for questions. And uh, once again, I just wanna thank everybody for everything they're doing on the front lines with this pandemic, including my own fellows. Um, just doing a fantastic job here on Five South with me. And uh, questions? Sam, that was a great talk. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. Um, I have a question for you, although maybe you won't have the answer. Um, I think in 2018 or 2019, there was a paper in JAMA, Andromeda Shock, that is specifically in septic shock, but they actually use one of the uh, ways to evaluate shock and they compare uh, capillary perfusion or peripheral <laughs> perfusion to lactic acidosis. Yeah. The initial trial was not actually that uh, promising, but then they redid a Bayesian analysis of it, I think a year later, and it looked like using peripheral circulation, so just kind of the microcirculation in the fingertip or the fingernail bed was maybe even better than lactate at looking at mortality. Do you guys ever use that in trauma yeah. and magic shock or other forms of shock? <clears throat> yeah, so I... So Andy, yeah, absolutely. And, and by the way, whole other separate talk, but I'm a huge fan of the Bayesian methods because that's how we think as clinicians, you know, right? Um, a lot of these trials get analyzed with frequent, frequentist uh, statistics. And I think when we look at it from a Bayesian standpoint, I think um, perspective or analysis, that's how we think. What data are we adding into our pre-test probability to get to a better post-test probability? So that's how we think as clinicians. And I really like all the work that's been done with Andromeda. And I, I, I do, we do use that. I do try to consciously take a look at that. And actually, I think it's a really valuable, cheap way to, to determine, you know, how well resuscitated you are. Look, if you've got a patient who's hypotensive, 
but they're extreme. I mean, they're not in, they're not in a, like a spinal, you're not, they're not in a spinal shock or something. You know, if you can actually take a look at them and they feel warm, well perfused, they're mentating, their cap refills less than two seconds. I think that's another endpoint of resuscitation. Absolutely. I think in the next talk then, I need to update that and show some pictures. Um, because I, 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 I do do that in my practice. I think it's very valuable. It's cheap. I think the tissue oximeter that I showed you is a fancy tool to try to assign a number to cap refill. I think that's what that technology was kind of doing. It didn't really work that well either. So I, I think that's a wonderful way to go. Uh, it's one of the first things you can do walking into a room is, is check cap refill. And um, I think that there's a lot of information there. I do. I am in agreement with you, both about Bayesian and about cap refill. I think it's super easy if you put your hands on the patient, you get a lot of information about their shock. And I would be interested in how it ultimately correlates with the more sophisticated technology that Mike and Jason Stankowitz are looking at with the microcirculation. Mm -hmm. But for those of us who are poor and don't have that technology and, and don't know how to interpret it, I encourage people to just put your hands on your patients um, and read the Andromeda shock and the Bayesian reanalysis of it. Yeah. Concur. Hey, Sam, this is uh, Mike. Hey, uh, wonderful talk, um, as always, uh, number one. Number two, uh, you can use the, the sublingual uh, microcirculation tool whenever you want. It is freely available for you or anyone else to, uh, to utilize, as long as you're careful with it. <laughs> and number three, um, John Chow and I uh, recently were working with some folks out in Ohio and sent uh, blood, kind of residual blood to their group to analyze renin levels. And um, what on our prelim analysis, and we're about uh, to submit the manuscript, um, but it's basically the it's validation of Patrick Gleason's study in critical care medicine from last year that highlighted that renin actually may be a better marker um, than lactate for uh, in-hospital mortality. And, and our study, and uh, at least on our prelim analysis, is looking like an um, area under the curve of um, like over 90% versus, you know, around 80-ish percent for lactate. So it's another, so we'll certainly, uh, you know, it's in its early stages of analysis, but, um, and, uh, but that's another interesting um, path that's going to open up here over the next couple of years. Like, how, how, how yeah. quick can the assays come back on renin? One of our things we, because I, I, you know I'm with you on that. I yeah. think um, that's one of the struggles we have with renin, though, is that sometimes it doesn't come back as quickly. Is that going to change, though? I imagine it should change, right? I mean, there's got to be the assays that can get that back quicker. Do you know, can you comment on that at all? Yeah. Yeah, that's around the corner as well. Sure. Uh, but you're certainly correct. Um, because of its lack of rapid turnaround, it's more of a function of research as opposed to uh, clinical implementation, you know, at the bedside. Yeah. But I mean, there's no reason why it shouldn't be other than just, you know, turnaround time, as you say. But that's around yeah. the corner. Cool. I just want to ask one last quick question. Please. Uh, so as a new practitioner in this one, it's taken me a little bit of time. For those who are pretty facile with this, very quick on getting these dynamic views with our ultrasound, for example, um, is it easier in your practice? Because I've tried to push this on some other units and run to the resistance that for some of these dynamic measures, for example, it takes some time and it takes a fluid bolus or it takes, you know, raising the legs, which you can't always do on some of our patients. 
And that kind of, um, it's that added time component that culturally has led people to kind of sometimes just push for, listen, it's either the heart's not beating hard enough, or we don't have enough volume, or it's a microcirculatory problem. So we're just going to kind of hit this one at a time and almost just try something and see what happens as a result. Not, not really the best science. So for the people who are fast at this, how quick can you turn this around? You mean, are you talking about, uh, this is Bobby, right? Sure is. Yeah, yeah. So how, um, how, uh, how fast can you turn around, you mean, in terms of like the hemodynamic assessment um, with echo or just looking at the whole picture? I'm going to go with echo on this one. I think that's okay. enough. Yeah. So I, look, I, I, I think you're, I don't know. Look, I, I carry my own butterfly. I had a, I had a Lumify. I have no, I, I think having your, I don't, you haven't seen me use it because we've had good availability this week, Bobby, you've been on my unit. Um, you know, sometimes you can't get the ultrasound machine though. Sometimes you can't get a good view. I think those are the limiting factors, but I think, I think most of the people that I'm seeing listen to this talk, honestly, are really good with this stuff. And I think if you're not, I would, I would argue, uh, that this is, this is the way we should be going. I mean, I think if you're going to go by things like CVP and other static indices, if you're going to wait for a lactate, I mean, these are all complimentary. I think that you're not with the times. I'm going to make that extreme statement here. I am. I think that um, ultrasound is a skill that should be, uh, you don't have to be a pro like Sarah Murthy and folks like I, I, Dan Hasse and all of our colleagues here, but I think that you should uh, have some working knowledge of some, some basic, at least qualitative things you can look at. You got to be careful though, because you know, it's not just one thing on echo either. And if you're going to do it at the higher end, you know, things like stroke volume variation do take a little bit of time to really do correctly. So you're right. And you can't always get it. I would still, though, submit to you that what I'm, what I'm trying to convey today is it's not just echo either. It's, it's if you can at least use two or three of these things in your pyramid and make a, car, and a case for giving fluid rather than just giving the fluid and looking at the blood pressure. I think that's a far slicker way to go. So pulse pressure variation, slow the A-line down, look for the pulse pressure variation. If you don't have an A-line, maybe look at the, 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 the um, pulse ox waveform, if you've got a good pulse ox waveform. You know, passive leg raising, whole other talk, but yeah, that's another thing you can do. I think you can do two or three provocative measures quickly at the bedside, and Bobby, nobody does it better than you. I mean, you, you would never give fluid to somebody and just say, oh, I just wanted to do it to see if their blood pressure went up. I know you wouldn't. You would always take that extra step and I think that's the whole idea with this is when you're trying to look at, okay, when can I turn the fluid off? When can I turn the vasopressor down? When can I not have to give more blood? I don't think it's one thing. I think you have to look at a, a block of two or three parameters or more and make that determination. And um, it's tough. You don't always have echo at your disposal, but if you do, I think you get some of your biggest bang from your buck from a good hemodynamic assessment. Alternatively, you know, if you're really struggling that bad with this, I'll say something here that's going to be controversial. That's where maybe we put a PA catheter in, okay? You know, there's people that you can't get good views on. You don't want to keep dunking a TE probe in. Maybe a, P, maybe a PA catheter could help in those cases. I don't think the PA catheter is completely dead. Um, but if you want to trend things and, and have some information to work on, I think as intensivists, we all got into this because we like physiology. We want to understand it. We're not just algorithm followers. And so I'm presenting what looks like an algorithm, but the concept I think is where we have to go and use bits and pieces that you can get to tease out where that patient is. 
And I think that's the key. Um, to push back on the ultrasound, though, I think that if you're getting pushed back on it, I think you just got to keep fighting the good fight on that one, honestly. And we're learning more. We're getting all kinds of new parameters on ultrasound. You know, lung ultrasound wasn't even that big a couple of years ago. Now we're using it in all our, our COVID patients, right? So I think that um, we just have to keep pushing this out there. I think it's just become an essential skill. I can tell you on the boards, it's now tested on the boards, uh, at least for anesthesiology, critical care. There's a ton of ultrasound down there. This is not something we can just bury our head in you know, with and say, well, I, I'm too old to learn it. it. It's part of the times. I'm sorry. It's not the only thing, but it's a huge tool in our toolbox. Keep fighting the good fight. Thank you very much. That was a great talk. Sir. Thank you so much, Sam. We really appreciate it.